Welcome to this week's episode of the Big Book Living Alive podcast, a weekly podcast showcasing the 1993 Big Book Seminar presented by Joe and Charlie in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. I am your host, Brad S., and I am an alcoholic. Do you work the program or does the program work you? That's kind of a loaded question because you have to put in the work. I have to put in the work. There is no gimme in this program. And I don't want to sound like, hey, all the old people were like, the kids don't want to work today. And all the kids are like, hey, the old man is just trying to keep me down, won't let me play my Xbox. Yeah, I kind of dated myself there, I understand. But what's going on today is the same as what was going on 60, 70 years ago when this book was written and centuries before that. We are sick and we need a cure and this is a solution that works. It has worked for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Joe and Charlie are going to explain a little bit about what kind of work needs to be done in today's episode. Drink. Page 24, squiggly writing. See, when I went to that preacher and I went to that psychiatrist, if I'd have known the truth, I'd have told them. I mean, I really would have, but I didn't know what the truth was. You know, I've heard all my life, know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if I'm not free, it's because I don't know the truth. And the truth is, I have a physical allergy to alcohol. I can't drink because of the allergy, and I can't keep from drinking because of the obsession of the mind. And the main problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind rather than in the body. And I need a complete psychic change, complete change of attitude toward a lot of things in order to stay sober. That is the truth, and I must see that. And we've just gone through the information to see the truth. Here's a whole paragraph now of squiggly writing. The fact is this, that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into consciousness with sufficient force the memory and suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We were without defense against that first drink. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of air do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of a kind of defense that keeps one putting his hand on a hot stove. You know, if you've burned your hand on a hot stove, chances are you're not going to go back and stick your hand on that stove again because you remember exactly how it feels. I remember as a kid growing up during the Depression years, and there's a few of you in here that can remember that also. In those days, we didn't have very much. We didn't have hot and cold running water. We didn't have forced air heat. We had very few of those kind of goody-goodies we got today. But I remember even in those days, in most families, cleanliness is still next to godliness. And everybody in the family takes a bath on Saturday night. Now, whether you need it or not, it's absolutely beside the point. You're going to take a bath on Saturday night. Now, I remember one time in the middle of the winter, Mother had heated the water up on the old heating stove in the living room, put it in a number three zinc wash tub, set it behind that stove. Every kid in the family takes a bath in the same water. Now, I'm the baby of the family. <laughs> By the time it got to me, the crud would be about an inch thick. And Mother would say, get in there and get clean, and I'd wonder how in the hell am I going to get clean in there, but I didn't dare say it to her. This particular night, Cold outside, snowing, wind blowing, icy as hell, heating stove red hot, 
I get in that tub, I'm taking a bath, and I lean over, and I stuck my rear against that hot stove. And I'll never forget it. It raised a blister on my rear end about as big as my hand, hurt me worse than anything had ever hurt me before. And you know, I've never had an obsession of the mind to stick my ass on a hot stove. <laughs> I have never jerked my britches down, backed up to a stole, and said, burn me again. <laughs> now, alcohol, alcohol has burned me over and over and over and over, just as bad as that stove ever burned me. But for some strange reason, I can't remember what alcohol does to me. The reason willpower doesn't work is just before I take a drink, I think I can drink. And the only time willpower works is when the mind sees something wrong with what it wants to do. And just before we drink, we believe that it's going to be okay to drink and willpower is non-existent. That's the most baffling thing about alcoholism. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. Or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often have some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way and after the third or fourth pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sake, how do I ever get started again? Only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink, or what's the use anyhow? When this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he's probably placed himself beyond human aid, and unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane. Now, if I've placed myself beyond human aid, then the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous will not bring about recovery because the fellowship is made up of a bunch of humans who are just as powerless as I am. Therefore, there must be something more than just fellowship in order to bring about recovery. Page 25, there is a solution, and we're getting ready to take a break period. And just before we break, I've got a note that says... If the lady who lost her room key will see Neil during the break, he's got your key, hmm. oh, whoever Neil. you might be. Yeah. Let's take about a 15-minute break, okay? okay? Looking at the uh, first half of Chapter 2, we've been looking at the idea that fellowship alone is not sufficient. Although it's one of the powerful elements in the cement which binds us together, and we've been able to see in the first half of that chapter that because of the obsession of the mind, we've become absolutely powerless and no power on earth is going to keep us sober. It also tells me on page 25, there is a solution to that condition. Even though fellowship alone is not sufficient, we still do have a solution to this thing called alcoholism. So let's start looking at the solution, the real solution to alcoholism. Well, he said all of this up to this point to say this. Now he's going to get right down to it. He said there is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for a successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others. We saw that it really worked in the people in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we'd come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we'd been living it. When therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. 
we have found much of heaven have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence as, we, as which we have not even dreamed. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives and which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. You know, I didn't like the idea of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous either. And certainly I didn't like the idea of God because it brought up a lot of old ideas to me. And in that book, the original printing of that book, this little asterisk that you see here that says the great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. That little asterisk is not in the first printing. It left a lot of people with the idea that we had to have a deep and effective spiritual experience, and I was dreading that idea, believe me, and I'll tell you why. Charlie and I were raised within three miles of each other, and in that area, we, I told you earlier, we have Baptists and then there's Southern Baptists, okay? Well, we have these Southern Baptists, and from time to time, the local preacher is not doing a real good job. So they have a, what they call a revival, and they bring in another out-of-town preacher, kind of like Charlie and I. You bring in this out-of-town preacher. <laughs> and they have a revival trying to revive the congregation. And they have singing, and they have dinner on the ground, and they have music, and they have preaching day and night all day. And eventually, people begin to kind of get into the spirit of this thing. And uh, my aunt did this one night. She got to dancing around and singing and talking in strange languages and falling down on the floor and rolling around. And, and she was having a spiritual experience. And so when they talk about spiritual experiences, spiritual awakenings, I thought that's what I was going to have to have. And I was dreading that. Believe me, I was. But they recognized this in the second printing. And they put down here a little asterisk and at the bottom of the page it says, fully explained in Appendix 2. And then later on in page 27, it says, for further application, see Appendix 2. And on page 47, it says, please see Appendix 2. <laughs> they mention something three times, which is very, very important when they do that. So it might be a good idea that if I'm going to have to have one of these spiritual experiences or spiritual awakenings, it might be a good idea that I would understand what they meant. So on page 569, they explain this idea of the spiritual experience or spiritual awakening to people like me. So let's go to page 569. If we're going to have to have one, let's go back and see what it really is. And it's not all those things I thought it was. He said this, the spiritual experience. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakenings are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading... You know, alcoholics don't do careful reading, by the way. <laughs> Shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. I think the first thing I learned from that paragraph is there's going to be two terms. It could be spiritual experience or it could be spiritual awakening. In either case, it consists of a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. Now, this sounds a lot like what Dr. Silkworth called a psychic change. Remember, he said once the psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. So we might, we might run into several terms. Psychic change, personality change, spiritual experience, spiritual awakening. 
They all mean exactly the same thing, a change in our mental attitudes and outlook upon life, period. This spiritual experience could be a sudden change, like the one described by Bill, it happened immediately. And the spiritual awakening developed slowly over a period of time. They call the educational variety, kind of like the one we're doing here this weekend. Yet it's true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Well, happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. Bills happen just almost in a blinding flash of light. Several of the stories in the back of the book, the same thing occurred. And people originally thought in the first edition of the big book they were going to have to have the same thing, a sudden spectacular upheaval. And Bill says, happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. It does not have to happen fast. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Now, a lot of them are going to have it. It is a frequent thing that occurs, but it certainly is not the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the edu educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. In other words, most of us are going to change as we learn, and we're going to change over a prolonged period of time. Spiritual experience will be fast. Spiritual awakening will be slowly over a period of time. Now, sooner or later, those of us that have had a spiritual awakening awaken to the fact that we have had some kind of change. It's usually a slow process. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. That's an awful lot to take in in this week's chapter. We've now seen and heard that the change that we are required to make in order to find the solution is personal. This is not a cult. We are not demanding that you put on sackcloth and eat only rice for whatever. Uh, this is not a revival. We don't charge into town and say you're cured in one week, or weekend, I should say. This is an ongoing process. This process is personal, and this process can be fast, slow, intermediate. It's all up to you. Now... You sit there and say, wait a minute, how can my own change be up to me if it's supposed to be a spiritual awakening? How can I have this experience if I don't know when it's going to happen? That is the difference between faith and belief. And we'll get to that later on. But right now, what we heard this week, you may want to re-listen to this week's episode because this really is the nexus of change. This is where Bill shows us why the program works. Not just how, but why. And think about that for a minute. What were we given? We were given the information that the change is personal, that we put in the work, and we have the spiritual awakening, followed by the experience. You can jump awake with the information, but if you don't use it 
and me experience the bedrock of this change, then you're not going to get long-term sobriety, in my opinion. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. If you'd like just the raw Joe and Charlie portion of the podcast, that is available on our Patreon site. The link to that is available on our website or in the pinned comment. Until next week, this is the Big Book Living Alive Joe and Charlie podcast.